My guest today is a lifetime natural competitive bodybuilder. Now we're gonna riff a little bit on bodybuilding because I haven't yet on the podcast and maybe some of you out there do you want to compete or you are competing? So you're going to get a little bit of that. But then we're going to dive into the question of, hey, is keto dead? I mean, should we be doing keto? Robert Sykes has been doing keto his entire bodybuilding career life. Well, for most of it. In the beginning, he followed that traditional bro dieting wisdom, which was the six, seven meals a day. Remember that? The carbohydrates, the high protein. But he noticed the downward spiral of his own health and massive disordered eating, which I can totally relate to, and we talk about it in here. So if you compete, if you want to compete, if you have disordered eating, if you're playing around with the ketogenic diet, if you're scared of the ketogenic diet, if you don't think keto will work for you, then you do need to listen. Because we're going to discuss whether or not keto is dead or should we revive it? Because it has so many beneficial health effects on the body. So enjoy this episode. I made Hormone Fixer for you to get more of that GSD hormone. You want adequate levels of testosterone in order to have motivation, in order to burn fat, in order to build sexy lean muscle that is not only going to make you better at burning fat every single day, it's also going to protect you. It's going to protect you as you age. It's going to protect your bones. You want sexy, lean muscle in order to have a metabolism. So get some hormone fixer, start taking it, and just enjoy the benefits. What we have been hearing from the community of people taking it, improved energy, improved strength. They're seeing their muscles pop out and look amazing when they're working out, they're getting that pump. They're having a libido. They actually want to have sex again. You cannot go wrong with Hormone Fixer. It increases your growth hormone. It increases your testosterone. The cyst is quadrangulus and it helps your bones. The Tonkatali helps keep your sex hormone binding globulin low, which we want that as well. So it's not bound up to our thyroid hormones and testosterone. Try the Hormone Fixer. Trust me, it's going to change your world. Robert, I'm so pumped to have you on for a multitude of reasons. Number one, we met at KetoCon, so we have a lot of the same philosophies. And number two, like I mentioned off air, I don't get to talk to anybody about the bodybuilding days. And so I want to kind of riff about that just a little bit because it brings me joy to talk about it, right? And you're still in, in the bodybuilding scene. You're still competing. And I, some of my listeners, some of them, our competitors and you know some of them have even thought about doing a fitness figure competition because a lot of them are are women that listen to me and the guys out there too have tossed it around in their heads so i kind of want to just talk about that a little bit and then we'll move into how to eat low carb and all the excuses that we hear from from our audience and our clients and kind of break those down to really help people move through their excuses get out of their own head and really kind of lay out what they can do and implement in their life to make changes in their physique, whether they're stepping on stage or not. So to that note, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be chatting with you today. And I'm loving the agenda. We can talk about those topics all day long. So let's roll up our sleeves and rock and roll. Let's do it. So I want to start with your story because I know that you have struggled with weight. It's not like you're coming into this space and stepping on a stage and you're genetically gifted. And I mean, you, you are genetically gifted. You look like a rock star. Ladies, if you're listening to this, you might want to go to YouTube because Robert is definitely eye candy and look at his, his podcast, look at his YouTube too. I mean, you have the body of a rock star, but you weren't always like that. So what is your story? Yes, yeah, so I I was I would argue that I'm not genetically gifted. I mean, both of my parents are incredibly small, rather petite people. I was 115 pounds when I started training, and that was kind of the motivation to start training because I just felt very small, and I wanted to kind of build up confidence in my physique. Um, probably for selfish reasons, I wanted to you know look better for the ladies in high school and whatnot. And my uncle was an athlete in the family. He kind of was always more outgoing. And I just wanted to kind of emulate that. So he took me under his wing, showed me how to do a bicep curl and a lat pull down on some janky equipment he had in his gym. 
And the rest is history. I just became addicted to the sport. I fell in love with it, started watching YouTube videos nonstop of, you know, pro bodybuilders, what it would take to get to that level. And I just started teaching myself how to train. The first year of my training was in my dad's shop. I was using like a green igloo ice chest as a bench press, uh, you know, just tractor weights that I had laying around as equipment. So very rudimentary beginnings, but that worked. I put on a lot of muscle, put about 20 pounds of muscle in my first year of training. And for me, it was very cool. Unlike the team sports in which I was kind of beholden to everybody else's level of discipline and hustle with bodybuilding, what I got out of it was a direct correlation to what I put in it. So I really fell in love with that component of it. And I was following like the whole traditional eat big to get big mentality. So on that note, I was just slamming down copious amounts of foods, had no idea what keto or low carb was at that time, bulked up to 230 pounds. And I'm only five, seven, five, eight. So 230 pounds on my frame was not a good look. And I, I leaned out for my first show. I gave myself 12 weeks, lost 80 pounds in 12 weeks, lost a ton of muscle in that process and kind of developed a bunch of eating disorders after that escapade and realized there had to be a better way. So that's when I started dabbling in all different types of diets. I, I started doing carbohydrate backloading. And that's basically keto during the day and then a bunch of high glycemic index carbs at night. But I noticed that I felt better without the carbs at night. So I started doing carb backloading minus the carbs, which lo and behold, pretty much straight keto. This was back in 2014, 15 era. So not really any information or books or podcasts on keto at that time. But I started diving into it and then realized what it was that I was doing. And so I just started refining that process. And I've been strict keto ever since. And I've since developed a ketogenic prep protocol to kind of allow myself to compete you know, on a competitive level with a ketogenic diet, went pro in 2017, and have since pretty much dedicated my life to educating others that may also benefit from the ketogenic diet. That's so awesome. That's amazing. And, you know, I think eating disorders and competing go hand in hand. So mm -hmm. when I have someone come to me and they mention that they want to compete, I always have a really good sit down with them because you have to enter bodybuilding competitions, fitness figure, whatever it is that you choose to do, whatever category, you have to enter with a really strong mindset and know, and even though you can tell yourself this over and over again, know that what your body is that day on stage is not sustainable. And you yeah. can't try to sustain that or attain that after you step off that stage. And you also can't look at yourself and start calling yourself fat or out of shape just because you're a week out and you're actually eating like a normal human being, or at least a clean eating normal human being, you're still going to put that weight on. How did you deal with the eating disorder that we all get or disordered eating at least after you compete? Yeah. How did you break out of that? Is it through implementing the keto diet ongoing? Yeah. So after that first show, when I did lose the 80 pounds in 12 weeks, I, I won that show. Like I was shredded. But then afterwards, I went to the traditional celebratory meal, like all competitors do. We went out to Red Lobster and I ate everything, like literally everything. I was so sick. I put on 20 pounds in 24 hours. I had a massive negative rebound. And that that repeated for the next two shows that I did. So that was just not good. And it really screwed me up mentally because I put forth all this work and effort and seemingly threw it all away in an instant. And that is the common thing. That is the norm. That is not abstract or obscure in that space, you know, pretty much every competitor struggles with that to some extent, especially in the beginning as they're not seasoned. So I realized that that was not sustainable, certainly wasn't healthy. And when I started adopting the ketogenic diet, I think a lot of it was from a physiological standpoint, I had more stable glucose levels. So I wasn't having the big swings in insulin and glucose. So I wasn't having the mood and craving fluctuations. But from a psychological standpoint, I didn't feel guilty about the foods I was eating anymore because I was eating all wholesome, single ingredient, nutrient dense foods without having that guilt associated with the foods I was eating. that allowed me to break free of that downward spiral as well. But I would be binging and then purging. Like I went the whole, whole nine yards with it. And like I said, that's just a very common theme amongst competitors. So my belief now is that if you structure nutrition properly, you're following a well-formulated ketogenic diet, you go through the building phase and cutting phase appropriately, there's no need to feel like you're sacrificing because I don't feel like I'm missing out on foods anyways. I just adjust the amounts of the foods that I'm eating. And then when I finish my competitive season, I transition to a healthy reverse diet, 
put on a healthy amount of body fat to you know, reestablish healthy hormone levels, healthy metabolic rates, and then I just go into a building phase. And it's become a much more sustainable, healthy approach to body recomposition. And I think the more people that are you know educated on how to do that properly, the less you know yo-yo dieting we'll see out there for sure. And that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly what happened to me. So I competed back in the early 2000s. And back then we didn't have the internet. We didn't have the information that we do. And even though I worked with the coach at the time, there wasn't the guidance afterwards. There wasn't that, like you said, reverse dieting afterwards. And so you go through that deprivation state and naturally you come out the other side. And listen, I remember, I remember that first meal after my first show and telling whoever was driving me afterwards, they got to stop the car. And I opened the door and started throwing up because I just gorged myself. And I do remember, I mean, the scale would go up and down, up and down. And this is even before I was diagnosed with a thyroid problem. I mean, that came when I was getting ready for NPC Pittsburgh that the scale kept going up. But after a show, oh my God, I mean, I would rebound 20, 30 pounds. And that's really one of the reasons why I don't want to compete again, because I'm finally stable. And I see these girls in the gym and I see them, you know, doing their posing practice and they're looking hot as hell and amazing. And then two weeks later, they're 30 pounds heavier and yeah. trying to kill themselves on the step mill to lose that. And it's just their body basically rebelling against them from the deprivation. See, what we need to do is take what you know about proper thyroid and hormonal health, apply that to what I know about competition prep bodybuilding, and then you do another show the healthy way, the right way, not have that crazy rebound, and then you fall in love with the sport again. That's what we ought to do. I know, because I do I do miss it. I do have that in my yeah. heart. I mean, the amount of shows I did, and I did like you, and I want you to get into the different organizations. I did NPC, but did it naturally. Mm-hmm. And as you know, you can't really compete in NPC naturally. And I did the OCB, and that was a ton of fun. So I do, I mean, and a ton of photo shoots that I dieted down for. So I do miss it. I do. Yeah. So, uh, what? So what organizations were you drawn to? And did you ever try NPC? Because I know you're natural. Yeah, so I've competed in NPC, I've competed in GBO, that's the one I went pro in, competed in the OCB, NANBF, and then the INBF. So I'm this season I'm competing in OCB and predominantly INBF, WNBF. So if I win my pro card in the INBF, then I become a WNBF pro. And that's kind of like the most prestigious of all the natural federations. So that's the one I'm really trying to set my sights on. So the world's competition is in November. That's like the, you know, quote unquote, Super Bowl of natural bodybuilding. So that's the one that's, you know, I've got my sights on. But yeah, that one is a very, very strict federation. They have a 10 year ban on all these banned substances. So if you're caught with those, then you're literally banned for 10 years from the sport. Some of them are lifetime bans. I've always kept it natural. So I want to kind of double down on that. Not anything against the people that don't go the natural route, but I mean, you really need to be just transparent and honest because there's so much confusion as to what's possible out there. And for people that go the enhanced route, you know, that's their own prerogative, more power to you. It takes hard work either way. But I think the people that are watching online, especially since social media has become such a thing, like they need to know what is physically attainable naturally versus the enhanced route. So I've always wanted to be the best I can be naturally. So just documenting that process and sharing others what I learned in that process has been key for me. Now, let me ask you this. With the natural route, I'm I'm sure that you get judged because of your physique and you look, I mean, full and jacked and lean. Don't you get that question like, come on, Robert, you're not really natural, right? I mean, I'm sure you've been had your balls busted over that. Oh yeah. All the time. Uh, but I mean, like I've, I do blood work too. So people can see how low my testosterone gets, which is pretty typical for natural athletes. So hopefully I can point to that as, you know, evidence that I'm natural. Plus when I compete, I mean, I'm competing at 157, 160 pounds, like people that are enhanced are competing at 260 pounds. So they've got a hundred pounds more of lean tissue on me, but it is funny. I mean, like you put your pictures out on social media and you're just opening yourself up to be you know, judged by people. And like, it's weird. Like I haven't really talked about this publicly, but I've got like a little bit of gyno in my left nipple from puberty. I've had it since puberty. People will go online, take pictures of that screenshot and be like, Oh bro, you got gyno. You definitely taken steroids in the past. I'm like, no, I've just had that since puberty. Not sure why it hadn't bothered me though. So I haven't done anything about it, but like people are just really quick to judge, but I know the facts. I know the the truth and I'm just going to keep standing behind that, you know? 
Absolutely. No, absolutely stand behind your own truth because you are the epitome of what hard work can look like. And honestly, I mean, whether you're male or female, you can look at Robert and say, he's doing it right. Like he has, he attained this very lean, muscular, naturally, this look naturally and doing it through the right kind of lifestyle and ketogenic eating and heavy resistance training and getting in the protein. So that's what I'm going to kind of transition to now is what you and I hear from our audience, from our clients, from the people that we work with when we are trying to move them into maybe stepping on stage, maybe not, because you work with both sets of people. You'll help someone get ready to step on a stage, but you'll also help someone just who wants to be in the best shape that they can possibly be in on a day-to-day basis moving through their life. So when we are working with these people, you know, we try to guide them. We try to really figure out what's going to work with their body. Obviously, I'm working with their thyroid hormones too, because if those are all jacked up, it's not going to happen. But how do you deal with all the different, we'll get into each one, but all the different kind of excuses, for lack of a better word, all the different excuses that people come up with as to why they can't X, Y, Z. Excuses are a tough one. And I feel like, I feel like because I'm natural, I can point to that and really use that against these excuses. Because when people think something's not obtainable, they have all the more reason not to be motivated to try and pursue it. And when I can say, hey, look, I'm natural. I've been doing this for the past 15 years. This is not an overnight success story. This is a long game approach. But I'm doing this to illustrate to you that you can also do this. Here is the protocol in which to do it. That kind of inspires them because then it feels more tangible for them. Because a lot of people don't want to go the route of the drugs, which I totally respect. And, you know, for me, every success I've ever experienced in life, whether it's been through natural bodybuilding, through the business endeavors, through my relationships, it's all come from a result of very hard work, disciplined work over countless years and repetitions. And I really just like that's my superpower as a human, just to double down on something without ever expecting to see results from it for 10 years, maybe. That's my superpower, you know, so if I can get people to fall in love with the journey and truly enjoy the aspects of nutrition and training and just the day-to-day routine component of it, then it becomes a habit. And once it's habitual, like when going to the gym and when eating right and getting quality sleep is just as much a part of your day as brushing your teeth, then over time you can look back and see this tremendous, you know, 10x and improvement And it doesn't even seem like work because you've just fallen in love with the journey. So just kind of wrapping people's minds around that concept has been key. And that is a superpower, Robert. That really is. I mean, to be able to implement something or work really hard and in your mind know that you might not see the results. Now you said 10 years, but my goodness, even if if our people would put it in their minds that I'm going to double down, like you said, I'm going to bust my butt and maybe I see results in six to 12 months. I mean, I think that that's a win because when you enter a program, work with somebody, whatever it is, and you think that you're going to see results in a month, two months, three months, that's ridiculous. I mean, you might start to see little changes in your body, but those longstanding big results, they don't come for a while, right? Yeah, I think six months is like a great equalizer. Like within six months, you can totally turn your physique around. You can turn your health markers around. You can turn you can turn a lot of things around in six months. Like if you just look at the level of keto adaptation, like being in ketosis after removing carbohydrates for 48 hours, you know, you'll register 0.5 or greater on a ketone strip, but you don't have the metabolic machinery to truly tap into the potential of a ketogenic diet. But if you've been doing it for six months, then you've built up a lot of that metabolic machinery. Your your cognitive enhancements are there. Your performance benefits are there. Then it just keeps getting better from that point. I feel like six months with most things in life is a pretty good break point. Like if you can make it six months, then you can really be honest with yourself and the results you're experiencing and then decide if you want to continue down that route or you know change course. Right. Absolutely. No, I'm with you. I, I, I love people that really commit to six months diving in because at the end of that you are going to see and feel like you said we can we can reverse a multitude of health conditions disease states in that amount of time where you can come off medication you can look and feel like a different person and then just like you're experiencing even with your business when you have your health and you're proud of and confident of the work that you've put into your body and your health 
you are so much better at everything you do. You know, you end up making more money because you're a better worker, you're a better employer, employee, business owner, whatever it is. You're a better husband, you're a better wife, you're a better father, you're a better mother, you're a better friend because of the work that you did on yourself. So it really has, it has fingers that go out and affect a multitude of areas of people's lives. I'm sure you've seen that with your clients too. Just people coming to you for the physique end of things and coming out the other side, a better human being. Yeah. Like when I look at my, like I started everything from a a bodybuilding standpoint, like the business all came afterwards. And when I look at the life lessons I've learned as a result of bodybuilding, like the hard work, the discipline, the dedication, like those have bled into every other area of my life and only made everything flourish. You know, and if I've got like the whole world can be upside down, but if I've got my nutrition and my training as a bedrock baseline on point, then I've got a solid firm footing that I can crawl out of whatever hell I currently find myself in. But you have to have some solid footing and that may not be nutrition and training for some people, but that has been a staple for me. And if I've always got that to lean back on, then I can recover from anything else the world throws at me. Yeah, I agree. So let's move into the eating. You and I were both at KetoCon and we both implement a low carb lifestyle. I think the word keto, I don't know, in in your opinion, have you seen people kind of moving away from the word keto or they look at you like a deer caught in the headlights when you say keto, like they get all scared, like, how am I going to do this? But really it's not that hard. And, and I'll let you speak to this too, but I tell people, listen, even though I spoke at KetoCon, even though that's what I do, I'm not going to put you on a ketogenic diet unless you need it right? If you're insulin resistant, some people can handle a little bit more carbs. So how do you work that with the people that come to you? They probably automatically get all freaked out that you're immediately going to put them on a keto or does everyone go on a keto diet when they work with you? How do you do that? Well, everybody knows me as the strict keto guy. So people that are coming to me to work with me, they they know that they're going to be put on a ketogenic diet if they're not on one already. I don't really get much pushback in that regard. As far as the word keto and is that falling in and out of favor of the the masses? That's a good question. You know, I've, I've gone back and forth on this. You've seen a lot of people in the space over the past two years rebrand, change their Instagram bio names. You've seen conferences change their titles. You're seeing a lot of people trying to step away from keto as a you know namesake because there's been this, I guess, dogmatic association around that. And personally, I'm just doubling down on it because at the end of the day, a ketogenic diet is is a metabolic state. Like that's not really something that can be like a, like a hype word. Like there's so many different diets out there. You know, you get like the South beach diet, like the, what, what the heck does that even mean? You know? So like a ketogenic diet is a metabolic state. So I don't really feel like that's going to fall out of favor if you're looking at it as an objective, you know, scientific approach. So I'm kind of doubling down on it in that regard. That said, I don't ever want to be seen as dogmatic around nutrition. Like if somebody doesn't want to adopt a ketogenic diet and they're going to find that to be unsustainable, like who am I to tell them that they're doing something wrong for it? So I don't ever want to become dogmatic around nutrition. That's what I do. That's what I found success with. I I believe that I can help people to find success with it as well. But if you're not following a ketogenic diet, it's not like I'm going to, you know, avoid conversation with you at at a conference or something, you know, more power to you. If it's working for you, then rock on. Okay. I am hearing you. I am hearing your frustration and I was in your shoes. So I totally get it. You are tired of the doctor jumping. You are tired of being medically gaslit. You are sick of being told that you're normal when you know that your body is rebelling against you. You know that the weight gain and the fatigue and the hair loss and the low libido and the dry skin is not you. That's not how you were years ago. That's not how your body was meant to be. And that's not how you want to live the rest of your life. So I'm going to invite you to work with me and my team. We can prescribe in all 50 states, including many provinces in Canada. So we got you covered there in the thyroid and the hormone department. We have you covered. Yes, we use bioidentical hormones only. None of that synthetic garbage. And we fix you. We bring you to that optimized state where you can live with me in optimization land where you have actual energy to get through your day. I swear you're not going to be looking at the couch at 2 p.m. wondering how quick you can take a nap. You will lose weight. You won't gain weight every time you go out to eat or look sideways at a brownie. 
we will get you to that optimized state. So I'm going to invite you to book an application call. And this is where you are going to go over everything, your health journey and all the different things you've tried and your frustrations. You're going to go over that with my team. And we will put you into the program that fits you the best. If you need prescriptions, we have you covered. So go ahead and click the book a call link in the show notes. I promise we will take good care of you. You can stop the doctor jumping once and for all. Stop wasting money on BS programs. Stop buying programs off of Instagram. People, I know you. I see you. (laughs) I know what you're doing. Looking for answers. We can fix you. And what are the biggest hurdles you see in transitioning someone to a ketogenic diet? Uh, there's just a lot of information out there right now. Like if someone is following a standard American diet and they go online to search how to do keto, there's so much conflicting information. So it's like, then they definitely get deer caught in the headlight syndrome and they don't really know where to turn. So honestly, I just start with the basics. Like I, I recommend people remove all the processed foods, return to, you know, single ingredient, wholesome, nutrient dense foods. If they're following a standard American diet and they're eating a ton of carbohydrates, they'll likely benefit from starting a ketogenic diet with a relatively high percentage of their calories coming from dietary fat, even if they have fat that is stored on them to be used, simply because if you remove the carbohydrates, you're removing your primary fuel source. So if you just simply go high protein and very minimal fat and no carbs, you're likely not going to feel great during that transitionary period. So you're going to be more likely to you know, deviate from the diet. So I typically will start people that are not yet fat adapted on a relatively higher fat approach with ample protein, obviously. And then from there, figure out what macronutrient distribution they're responding best at as an individual. But there's so much talk about protein right now, which I know we'll probably dive into. And it's interesting because the pendulum, like you and I have been in the space long enough to see the pendulum shift quite a bit. Initially, people were fearful of protein uh, because of gluconeogenesis. They assumed it would turn into chocolate cake upon consumption and they would avoid like the plague which is obviously not the case and certainly not recommended but now you're seeing people become such advocates for high protein at the expense of ample dietary fat and that's not really great either so the pendulum needs to kind of return to some homeostatic baseline because both fat and protein are essential carbohydrate is the only non-essential macronutrient not to demonize carbohydrates either but i mean there needs to be a, a healthy blend of the fat and proteins right So the hurdles that I see with keto or the, I'll say the, the, the complaints I see with keto from women, at least my audience implementing it and maybe not working with someone like yourself is that they start off with the high fat, but they start off with dirty keto. They're doing the cheese, they're doing the heavy whipping cream and their coffee. They're doing tons and tons of, of coconut fat. And it's almost like their fat is too high. So these are the ones that I'll hear them say, I gained weight on keto, which you go, how did you do that? Like that actually takes work to gain weight on keto, right? But it's just that abundance of fat. So where do you fall in amount of fat that really should be implemented? Now I know higher in the beginning, but once they ease into it, then where should that be? Once someone has become fat adapted, so we'll just call it six months, for instance, Generally speaking, a healthy maintenance ratio, and this is going to be, you know, dependent upon the individual, but a good general rule of thumb baseline is to have about one gram of fat per one gram of protein. Like if you're doing a rough one-to-one ratio, then you'll likely be in a pretty good medium there. Like one-to-one on grams of fat to protein is about 68 to 70% of total calories coming from dietary fat. And if someone is consuming ample calories and therefore ample protein, they should feel pretty good at that intake. For most people, there are certainly some outliers. And if you have specific goals, then we tweak that further. But a lot of people are just simply over-consuming calories or under-consuming calories. So if they're doing either of those extremes, then just simply looking at the ratio of fat to protein is not going to be enough because they may be consuming the right ratio. But if they're under-consuming calories, they're not getting the energy coming in and they're not getting the ample protein to recover, so they're not going to feel great. And if they're over-consuming calories and they've got the perfect ratio dialed in, they're still going to gain weight. So really having a more nuanced conversation around, okay, not just what is the macro distribution for you, but what total intake of food do you need to do to you know meet your goals? Okay, so this is good because I've been touching on the, the calorie thing, the calories in, calories out. 
which like you said, I mean, we have lived through the gamut of information. We have lived through that you count calories. Then we kind of moved into the no need to count calories. It's about the food that you put in. So if you're doing keto, you don't have to count the calories. But now we're kind of back in, at least I am, and it sounds like you are, we're back in the realm of like, no calories do matter because if you consume a crap ton more than what you need, you're going to put on body fat, even if you are consuming just protein or just protein and fat. So where do you fall in the the caloric realm with your clients, with male and female? Do How do you base that? Do you base it on their body weight, where they want to get to, whether they're doing a show? How do you figure that out? Yeah, so I've never advocated against tracking intake. Like I feel like that's always a useful tool. Like Now, some people would benefit from a period of intuitive eating. And I think you can certainly become more effective at intuitively eating via a low-carb ketogenic diet because there's less noise in the equation from processed hyperpalatable foods, if done correctly. But when it comes to counting calories, like calories should never be this negative stigma associated with it. Like people, there's all these dietary tribes and people want to demonize different things. So like if you've got the calorie counting group, it's like, okay, if you're counting calories, then you don't need to be part of the keto group. But there's like all these different tribes. It's like, why don't we just pick and pull the pieces of information from each tribe that is applicable and effective and proven to be effective and then just blend them all accordingly. So if you're following a ketogenic diet and you're eating minimally processed foods, that's just good common sense. Tracking your intake and ensuring that you're not under or overeating is also good common sense. So if you do both of those, combine those two tribe mentalities, you're likely going to see much better results than if you are extreme towards one or the other and dogmatic about one or the other. So I've always been an advocate for tracking your intake because you can most certainly gain body fat on any type of diet, you know, carnivore, keto, paleo, vegan, any and all of the above. But taking a more nuanced approach and looking at all those and then also focusing on hormonal health, uh, recovery. There's just so many different facets of nutrition and they all deserve their time in the limelight, so to speak. But you're doing yourself a disservice if you're completely eliminating one train of thought to just focus on your own dogmatic thinking towards a specific outlet. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of tracking your intake, making sure that that intake is coming from quality sources and then adjusting as needed. I think modulating your intake over time, periodization, so to speak, is also very key because there's benefits to being in a caloric surplus. There's benefits to being in a caloric deficit and people need to spend time in both as opposed to, you know, chronically being in one or the other. Well, I know for me when I track and I, and I've gotten away from tracking just because that was so much part of my, my competition days. So I've gotten away from it, but when I bring it back in and I really want to see what I'm taking in, I'm always surprised. I think in my head that I have one macronutrient profile. And then when I track it, it's not so much. So mm-hmm. in tracking, it really lets me dial in and say, hey, I'm not eating as much protein as I thought that I was. I'm eating more carbohydrates than I calculated in my head. So that's where I'll tell my people to track because it's it's going to give them that truth right in their face. And it's not the same as recall. You can sit down at the end of the day and recall your food. You're not going to write down everything that went into your mouth that day. But when you track it ongoing, as you put it into your mouth, that's a whole different story. Are you seeing that with, with your clients too, who are tracking? They're like, man, Robert, I really thought that I was staying under 30 grams of carbs, but I'm hitting 70 instead. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, and and that's not to say that people have to track all the time because I I don't even do that. Like I'm not an advocate for that. But like having periods of time where you do strategically track so that you can be honest with yourself is very beneficial. And a lot of people, like if they've never tracked, they have no idea what the nutritional profile of a, you know, six ounce plate of ground beef even is. So just simply familiarizing themselves with those nutrient profiles is going to be incredibly advantageous and a useful tool that they can use for years going forward. But then, yeah, if you take a period of time away from tracking, eating intuitively, seeing how your body responds, you know, adjust accordingly, but then every once in a while, intermittently throw in a few days of tracking to see kind of where your body is actually gravitating to is going to be incredibly insightful. Like for me, I'm tracking everything to the T right now because I'm in a competition prep. But then after my reverse diet phase, when I transition more into a caloric surplus, I'm not going to be tracking it strictly or hardly at all. But when I do that, it allows me to have that mental break from the tracking so that when it's time for me to transition back into another prep, 
I enjoy that aspect of it. I enjoy the component of tracking, but I, I give myself that time away from it. And I think that's key. There's like a yin and yang to it all. Like you need to have that balance, so to speak. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I agree because that can start to screw with you mentally, whether you're a competitor or not, you can start developing obsessions and eating disorders just from looking at your food every single day. So another big thing that I see with the tracking component, and you touched on it, is the protein. And I know you and I very much agree. We say the same thing of one gram per pound of lean body mass for protein. But wow, it is so difficult for people. I'll say people, mainly women. I I don't know if you see it mainly with women and less with guys. But for people to get in that amount, like, where do you think the problem falls? What are they doing wrong? And why is that such an excuse? I don't know. I think a lot of people get processed foods that market that they have high protein. Like if you look at most of the bars out there, they'll highlight, hey, we've got eight grams of protein per bar. And then you flip it over and actually look at the label and there's like 30 grams of carbs for every eight grams of protein. And people will consume something that is marketed as having protein. They just assume that they're getting ample protein throughout the day. But if you actually track your intake on protein and are honest with yourself on what that intake is, you'll know pretty quick if you're consuming ample protein or not. And if you're trying to increase the protein, there's so many options out there to do so. I mean, like like seafood, for instance, is incredibly high in protein, very low in calories. So someone can incorporate more seafood if they're having a hard time getting that amount in you know, egg whites, like there's so many options. If somebody wanted to go a more one-to-one ratio than like certain cuts of ruminant, you know, beef, you know, like a, like a sirloin or a ribeye or any type of steak is going to have a pretty healthy blend of both fat and protein. Any fish is going to be great, pork, chicken. I mean, there's just so many options for protein. And I feel like a lot of people that are chronically under eating are having a hard time eating ample calories and therefore ample protein because their metabolism is so downregulated. But just as true in a cut, like if you're trying to reach a certain degree of body fat, you have to kind of push past that point of hunger. The same is true in reverse. You almost have to push past that point of satiety in order to almost force feed a little bit so that your metabolism has reason to upregulate. And then their hunger, which is very counterintuitive, will actually start increasing as well. And it becomes easier to get more food in. So what do you think about intermittent fasting then? If you have to, if you need the time to get the protein in, and like you're saying, you might have to eat a little bit more push past that block that people have. What's your take on intermittent fasting? Is that a yay or a nay? So I'm intermittent fasting by default right now because my calories are lower and I'm only doing a one meal a day approach with this phase in my competition prep. But when I'm in a building phase, then I'm not as concerned with intermittent fasting. I'll typically have two or three meals a day at that point because I'm consuming in surplus of 3000 calories. It's easy for me to get that in when I'm doing it over more than one meal. Uh, if somebody is chronically under eating, then focusing on time-restricted feeding is probably not where they're going to get the most benefit. Ensuring that they're getting ample nutrition is going to be far and above more beneficial for them at that point than trying to adhere to a very strict feeding frequency. So I would recommend for that individual, don't concern themselves so much with the intermittent fasting component until you can ensure that you're consuming ample calories and ample nutrition first and foremost. I'm so happy you said that because again, the majority of listeners are women and I know they're trying to intermittent fast just to lose the weight, lose that body weight that they can't lose, that's coming on, that they have no control over. And in doing the intermittent fasting, I feel like they're almost they're under eating. So when I work with them, sometimes I have to do reverse dieting, which we'll talk more about. I have to do reverse dieting just to get their metabolism out of the hole that they put it in. And I get it that it's out of desperation. I get it that they get in that mindset of maybe if I eat a little bit less, maybe if I do, you know, 20 hours of intermittent fasting, that will be the thing that lets my body shed the fat. But it ends up backfiring because you go too low in calories, like you're talking about just total under eating. And then there's no way you're going to get in the protein. I mean, I can't sit down and eat 120 grams of protein in one meal. Like it's not going to work. It's not going to feel good either. Yeah. And what's more is like, if they're chronically restricting and they're not consuming ample nutrition, ample protein, then they're not going to feel great or have energy levels and they're not going to recover they're not going to train to the best of their ability. And if they're not training, then they're going to risk losing more muscle tissue and becoming more catabolic, which is also going to have a downward effect on their overall metabolic rate. So it's just a myriad of negative things that are happening if they're chronically restricting. I don't really ever recommend fasting as the primary modality for 
body composition changes and weight loss to begin with. Like I'll incorporate fasting from a, I'll, I'll incorporate extended fasting very, very intermittently when I'm in a caloric surplus, but it's never with the intention of losing body fat. Being in a caloric deficit is a stressor on the body. And extended fasting is also a stressor on the body. If you get too many stressors on the body happening simultaneously, you're not going to be doing yourself a service. So honestly, for the listeners, I don't recommend fasting if the goal is weight loss. Ah, nice. I'm so happy you said that too, because maybe that will break people out of that mold. Staying in the protein topic, the other, I guess, excuse or thing that I hear from people is that they don't want to eat what you said, the the meat, the fish, the chicken, the egg whites, they don't have the time to prepare it. They're running around like crazy. They're a soccer mom. They're at work all day. They have clients all day, whatever. They don't have the time. So they need quick and easy. Now, I know you don't really do a lot of protein powders. I do rely on like a bone broth based protein powder, but your keto brick is, I mean, I'm just going to say I, I kind of overrated at keto con because I kept circling back around and doing the samples and circling around and doing the samples. But that, I mean, that's, isn't that one of the reasons why you made it is for good quality food in a convenient takeaway bar, not like the bars that you and I see out there in the bodybuilding world, which are just glorified candy bars, really. Yeah, yeah. I would never market or suggest that the keto brick is a optimal source of protein. Like each brick has between 30 and you know 40 grams of protein in it, but most of them have around 85, 90 grams of fat. So it's much more of a fat-based bar than a protein bar, but it's a thousand calories. I mean, most protein bars don't have that much protein because they're much lower in overall calories. The reason I made the brick was to streamline my meal prep, basically. So I wanted to have a quality source of both dietary fat and protein that was a consistent macronutrient profile with quality ingredients that I can incorporate into my meal prep and take that out of the guesswork component. You know, meal prep is a, another controversial topic. A lot of people don't want to prep their foods, but if they're having, like if they have a compositional goal that they have not yet reached and they're having trouble adhering to any type of dietary protocol, removing decision fatigue is paramount. And if you can have all of your meals prepped in advance, ready to go and take that guesswork out of the equation, you're more likely going to adhere to that dietary protocol and you'll more likely see the results. So like for me, I keep my macros consistent on a week by week basis. I change them every week when I'm in a prep, but for the week, they're the same. So I'll meal prep for the entire week. Or my wife will rather I give her a shout out there. She's the one doing all the cooking and then I'll have it in a Tupperware and I'll have it, I'll have it ready to go. I'll eat my Tupperware and my keto break a day. And then I'm good. Like I hit my macros hundred percent on the head and I know exactly how my body's going to respond. And it does respond exactly like I want it to every single week. Like it's just down to a science now. And yes, it takes a little bit of, you know, discipline on the front end, but the amount of time I save throughout the course of a week by having all that prepped and ready to go far exceeds the amount of time I would have spent running from a grocery store to a restaurant, to a takeout, to try and make it work otherwise. Well, yeah. And I mean, for the women, you can eat a half of a bar and be satisfied. And okay. I, I have a patient that came in, she's like, I'm addicted to the keto brick. And so I'll eat half, you know, mid morning just to get something, something in. It still is 15, 20 grams of protein. It satisfies her that way she can blow through her day, not have to worry about, like you said, running around, stopping at a good restaurant to get something halfway decent. So you're not driving through McDonald's and so the ladies can do half of one and it's totally yeah. it's like a treat. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, there's so many different ways to eat them. Like a lot of people will melt them down into smaller, you know, bite size molds and have like hundred calorie bites as opposed to a thousand calorie brick, you know, and they're pretty versatile in that regard. I eat one whole brick a day, every single day. And I have for the past six, seven years, but yeah, I mean, I think from a, an ease of use and efficiency standpoint, it's great. Now I own a keto brick. I make keto brick. I'm, biased towards keto brick, but I'll still be the first to tell people, Hey, always prioritize, you know, single ingredient, wholesome, wholesome, nutrient dense foods first and foremost. And yeah. then anything in addition to that, that makes it more sustainable for you. Great. But make that the bedrock. Yeah, definitely. Whole foods first. Okay. Yeah. Now we're transitioning into training because you had mentioned that and that kind of dinged my brain into let's talk about the excuses that we hear with training. Oh, I have a hat over there. It used to be behind me. It's LHS, Latevi shit. And this is my message to 
women get off the cardio machines. Don't spend an hour doing cardio. You have to get into the weight room and lift. So let's start with what do you hear on your end excuse wise in terms of training? What do you like to do when you're starting to work with someone? Do you tell your ladies to, to stop being a hamster on a wheel on the treadmill and the elliptical too? Yeah. As far as like training modalities go, you know, cardio versus resistance training, like I'm always going to prioritize resistance training. You're going to have more body composition changes that come as a result of resistance training over cardio any day, every day of the week. So like that should always be the foundation there. And honestly, like I'm in a fat loss phase now trying to maximize fat loss. I'm only doing 20 minutes of cardio. And at this point in time, I'm only doing it twice a week. So I'm very minimal with my cardio. I kind of recommend a minimum viable dose with regards to cardio. So no need to be doing hours of treadmill every single day by any means. That time would be better spent lifting heavy shit. And then with regards to excuses, the main excuse around training is just simply people not having enough time. That's what they say. Uh, Not having enough time, you know, with their busy schedules. And for me, that's why I always train in the morning. Like I've got an incredibly busy day. I am literally going from three o'clock in the morning until I lay my head down at 9 p.m. at night. Like it is nonstop. So I train first thing in the morning before the world wakes up to bother me with anything. You know, I, I wake up at three, I go to the warehouse, I get some creative work done for two or three hours. Then I train. And at that point, it's still five or six in the morning before I'm getting inundated with emails and requests for the day. So I just carve out that time. I protect it with everything that I've got. And I don't make that an excuse. And if somebody has a hard time doing that, then figure out what time in their day is going to be able to be carved out and have as a dedicated training time. Because if you allow yourself reasons to to push it back and make it a back burner item, then it's never going to get done or deserve or get the attention that it deserves. Absolutely. No, I, I carve it out too. I put it in the schedule just like anything else. And it it has to be there for my own sanity. And I, I can't, I, I think you and I come from the same place of, we can't imagine it not being in our lives, but a lot of the people that we work with, maybe it's their first time really making this an ongoing thing or a habit. So do you find that that's kind of a tough transition to take someone who maybe really never worked out or hit the gym once or twice, they're a runner, maybe they go for a run instead, they haven't really lifted anything. How do you make that transition with the newbies? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be harder for someone that doesn't have that as ingrained as part of their day to day at that point. So for them, I mean, anything is better than nothing. So making some forward progress is key. So like if they are coming from a place of zero resistance training, then commit to once a week of doing something for 20 minutes, like anything is better than nothing. And then you could scale up from there. So a good general rule of thumb for people that have no training experience whatsoever is you can start with a simple push-pull leg routine three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, work that into your schedule. It can be 30 minutes. Everybody's got 30 minutes that they can carve out at some point. And then just start with the basics. I mean, if you have no equipment knowledge or how to use a machine, then just start with resistance bands or body weight movements, then scale up from there. And then you can graduate to, you know, free weights and things of that nature. But anything is better than nothing. Like my mother, you know, she's finally kind of turned the leaf and gone keto, which I'm super proud of her for. She's, she was never overweight, but she had several surgeries, was losing a ton of lean tissue. And we got her on a ketogenic diet and she feels amazing, which is just awesome. Like she's listening to my podcast and stuff now. So very proud of her, but I haven't quite cracked the code on her from a training standpoint yet because she is active around the the homestead. Like she's not overweight, she's active, but she still needs to train. So I'm going to just freaking bite the bullet and buy her adjustable dumbbells and an adjustable bench that she can have in her living room and then have that removed as an excuse. And if she simply commits to three days a week, of doing, you know, some simple movements with that, she's going to see significant improvement and retain that lean mass and be around for many more years to come. And that's what I want for my mother, you know, so anybody can do something and something is certainly better than nothing. Well, the protein and the training, you know, we talk about it in terms of aesthetics, but you just brought up a really good point in terms of longevity. So that muscle mass that you need protein to keep and you need resistance training to keep and build. That's your longevity. Ample calories. You want to have ample calories too. You don't want to be in a deficit. Yeah. And calories. Yeah. Yeah. But that's your that that's longevity. I mean, it's so much, it's beyond aesthetics. It's your long-term health, like you're talking about with your mom. 
Yeah. I mean, when I talk to people, like I, I literally describe the fountain of youth as a well-formulated ketogenic diet with resistance training and ample recovery. Like if you're doing those things, then you are going to get better. I had a client of mine come to town this past weekend to help with my wife's powerlifting meet because he's a powerlifter and he had competed two years ago. He's now 50, he's about to be 50 and he looks better now at 50 than he did at 47. You know, like most people can't say that they are getting better as time goes on. And bodybuilding is like an, an old man's sport, so to speak. Like you can get better with that if you continue to move in the right direction. And that should excite people. That should empower people. If, if they can feel confident that they're, you know, getting better with each year that passes, that gives them something to be excited about and look forward to. And I think that is motivating in and of itself. I love that your wife powerless because after I got done with the figure competitions, because I got sick of going up against the girls that were taking stuff, I transitioned to powerlifting because I'm like, you nice. either lift it or you don't. There's nobody judging how I look. The weight is either off the ground or it's not, right? So yeah, I love yeah. that. Love that. No, like she had, this was her first powerlifting meet. She had a ton of fun with it. So she competed in figure in 2018. That's actually where I proposed to her. I stepped up on stage when she won and proposed to her. So that was pretty cool. But then we had our son 15 months ago and he, she hasn't competed really anything since that, that figure competition, but she needed to do something to kind of scratch that competitive itch. She did this powerlifting meet and it was awesome because like in between her lifts, she was going over and like breastfeeding our son. So like doing everything very holistically, very naturally. And she was kicking butt. I mean, she got that. She just set a state record within that federation for bench press. I mean, she's incredibly strong. I'm I'm just blown away what she's been able to accomplish all while being a full-time mother and obviously all the time following a ketogenic diet. Uh, so she continues to thrive and it's certainly, you know, no need for excuses by any means. Right. That's what I was going to say. I'm like, come on. If a new mom can be breastfeeding her kid and going over and setting state records all in the yeah. same day, then yeah, I don't exactly. think anyone should really have any kind of excuses. 100%. Now, I mean, just amazing. That blows me away. That's amazing. Now, wait, one thing you said, I do want to almost kind of end on this note, kind of circling back to the nutrition piece and the keto piece. The ketogenic lifestyle is about longevity. That's part of you know your fountain of youth protocol. When we look at, and I've said this for years, when we really look at the studies of keto, this is why I hope keto doesn't die, right? It, we we need it to stick around, whatever you call it. I don't care if you call it low carb, keto, whatever. We need it to stick around because when you look at the, the scientific literature, there's no other diet, we'll say, you know, whether you're talking about, I, I don't even know, like paleo or the low FODMAP diet, there's no other eating plan that has so much evidence in terms of health benefits. It's like keto and reduction of Alzheimer's, keto and reduction of cancer risk, keto and reduction of heart disease. So can you talk about what you see in your own life and in your clients in terms of keto being a key point in reduction of their different disease states or health conditions that they have? Yeah, honestly, that's one of the areas that's really driving my interest as of late. I mean, the the ketogenic diet from a body composition standpoint, I think is incredibly empowering. I think certainly from experience, it's helped me break free of disordered eating tendencies. And for that reason, I'm incredibly passionate about this lifestyle. But when I look at it from a use case scenario for people that are struggling with PTSD, Alzheimer's, dementia, obviously type 2 diabetes and things of that nature, it has a tremendous role. And when we look at the psychological component that people are suffering with as of like that depression, like all of these things are through the roof right now, it's running rampant. And I think a lot of it stems from, you know, poor nutrition decisions. And if people can leverage a diet as opposed to going the route of, you know, pharmacology, then they, they owe it themselves to do so. And then when you tie in the component of this is also probably better for the environment, I mean, from a regenerative agriculture standpoint, from, you know, just tuning into your local neighbor and sourcing quality foods, you know, in your part of the town. I mean, all of these things go hand in hand. It's all symbiotic in nature. And I feel like if we can just simply return to that, kind of like it was before the industrial revolution and all this big agriculture and big pharma came to be, we'll all be better for it. And then when you look at it from a psychological standpoint, like we're, you know, beginning this conversation with, you know, that is so, so empowering. Like I had a, a podcast just yesterday with an individual that is on the autistic spectrum. 
and he adopted a carnivore diet and he's seen tremendous benefit with his autism symptoms. Like you don't hear about that from a South Beach diet or a paleo diet or a vegan diet, but you hear about that with the ketogenic diet. And I think that speaks very boldly of to what, what is possible here. And that, that has got me excited more so than anything else. So I could certainly hope as you do that the studies continue to come out and that people continue to double down on this as a viable approach to solving those symptoms. And I think with all those studies, with the anecdotal evidence, with the scientific evidence, it will continue to gain momentum. Now, was that your podcast that you interviewed an autism? Yeah, I had I had him on my podcast. It hasn't gone live yet, but it was a great conversation. You know, I mean, and, and I hear things like that all the time. Like I can't, you can't turn a blind eye to that when you just are inundated with these success stories day in, day out. It's just amazing. When that releases, you let me know because I want to share it to the world because so many, I mean, number one, I know a lot of people that have an autistic child. My stepson is. And I have been pounding the parents to try a ketogenic diet. I sent them the magic pill documentary, right? Back in, when that came out years ago of how they use the ketogenic diet and was actually getting these kids to speak that were nonverbal. And then mm-hmm. we can kind of even trail down and move out of the autism world into, de- like you said, depression, anxiety, and how this can really help light up the brain and turn on areas of the brain that are loaded down with glucose. They're using glucose for fuel instead of ketones and how the brain actually prefers ketones. So I love that you mentioned that. And I want to share that episode with the world whenever that comes out. So let me know. You'll like it for sure. Cause he's a competitor as well. So we talked about bodybuilding quite a bit. So you'll, you'll definitely like that episode. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So do you see the reduction in the need for depression medication, anxiety, SSRIs, ADD medication when you start working with people implementing the ketogenic diet? Yeah, 100%. And it's sad because we all know somebody that suffers with these symptoms. My cousin actually has suffered from depression. He's on a bunch of SSRIs, antidepressants right now. And he just refuses to fix his nutrition. But I feel so very confident that if we simply got that component of his lifestyle, then he would see tremendous benefit. And it's sad because, as, as you can probably attest, you, know, you have all this knowledge, but the, those that are closest to you are the ones that are hardest to sway. You know, that's why I'm like screaming yep. from the rooftops and very proud that I finally got my mother to go this route. But yeah, I mean, like the more information we can get out there, you know, if we can turn people's psychological health around for the better then the physical will follow. I mean, oftentimes the physical comes first because that's what people are looking at in the mirror. But we are in a crisis from a mental health standpoint. And if we can improve that, then we're going to be all the better for it. That's why I'm really enjoying all the content that Dr. Palmer's putting out right now. I don't know if you've seen much of his stuff about this and its role in psychological component. But yeah, I mean, that area of study is really giving me more motivation insight to just keep pushing this ketogenic agenda because I think it all goes hand in hand. I think it's a lifestyle that everybody can be on, even though kind of going back to what I said earlier, people look at you like a deer in the headlights, like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to implement it? And it's like, eat real food and then realize what high glucose and high insulin does to your body. And that alone will make you go the low carb ketogenic route. And then when you implement it and you see the results, you experience the results, you feel it, it, it's motivation to stay there and to continue doing it. Like, why would you go back? to feeling like garbage and sludging through your day and not having your brain work and not being able to focus and not being able to lose weight and being on a statin and a diabetic medication and antidepressant, right? And I could go on and on about what the the standard American diet does to the body. But once you experience it, why would you go back? Yeah. And that's honestly why I've tried to, you know, brand myself and just plant my flag in the ground as, you know, being strict keto and performing at an elite level because I feel like a lot of people do the ketogenic diet, experience some benefit, and then for whatever reason are swayed away from it because they're convinced that they need the carbohydrates to perform better or be more socially acceptable or whatever the case may be. But if I can say, hey, look, I am doing this strict keto, have been strict keto for eight years, and I'm going to be the best in my craft with this, then hopefully that can be some little, you know, some little point in this planet where people can be like and point to and say, Hey, look, there's somebody that's doing it. Maybe I can feel like I can do it too. You know? And I think that's what I've tried to do is just empower people to be like, Hey, look, you can excel at a very high level on all fronts of your life, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, 
and do it all with a well-formulated ketogenic diet that you don't feel like you need to deviate from and everything will improve. So yeah, that's been my message from day one. That's amazing. That's amazing, Robert. Well, thank you. Thank you for your message and for all that you do and for coming on here. And um, so for the listeners, can you tell people where they can find you? Yeah. So all things Keto Savage, KetoSavage.com, Keto Savage on social for me, and then KetoBrick.com, KetoBrick on social for the bricks. And I did run a book. Uh, we talked about that before we started recording, but that book is available at KetogenicBodybuildingBook.com. Okay. That's awesome. We're going to have all the links in the show notes for sure. Thank but, you very much. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. And we will be talking soon. We'll definitely have you back on. I certainly appreciate it. Pleasure as always. Thanks so much.